Just so you know, Jim, you got my permission and Jonathan. That last song, that could have used a drum solo at the end, you know. <laughs> to just blast it out that it's, it's amazing uh, where we just all end up going, yes, yeah. You know, that uh, we have a God who is willing to forgive us of our sins and accept us um, by Christ's righteousness alone. That's a lot of what the text is about this morning. Open your Bibles to John, 1 John chapter 2. And we'll be looking at the first two verses. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Hear now God's word. My little children. By the way, I'm not going to say much about little children there. It's just, but John, this is, he's writing this at the end of life. He's one of the oldest Christians you know, on earth. You get to that stage, everybody's a child, you know? And uh, he, he gives us here and other places this fatherly um, description as he's addressing his church, and he does it here. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want us to think this morning about the text uh, giving us a description of how to conquer sin. I remember when I was about fifth, sixth grade, on the playground, saw some uh, uh, really strong guys doing pull-ups on the playground pull-up bar, and they didn't just pull up, but you, you pull up and you get your chin over the bar, but then they pulled it down to their belly and spun all the way around. And I thought, amazing, that is so cool. I got to do that, you know. Well, I tried. I can't even get my chin up. So I went home, found an old pipe that we had from somewhere, plumbing pipe. I nailed it to two trees. And every day I'm out there when I get home pulling and pulling. After about two months, I finally get my chin over, you know. I've been working and working. And finally, after months, I finally go all the way around. And I thought, yeah got this and I couldn't wait to get to the playground you know and show off this new gymnastic ability and I get there and I do it you know once twice every day for a while and then you know I quit practicing because I was I was cool and it didn't take but maybe a week or two weeks I couldn't do it anymore I thought what just happened I thought I had conquered the bar and I thought sin's a lot like that there's times when we feel like, got it, conquered that sin, done. And then amazing how weak we become so quick and we're right back in that sin again. Have you ever conquered a sin and then you're right back in it and you thought, you know, you, you had done that? How can we really get to a place that we conquer sin? I want you to see a verse here. Don't miss it. Verse 1 my little children, I'm writing these things to you. Catch this. So that you may not sin. It's a purpose clause. It says the purpose in writing this to you is so you may not sin. Say that in your mind two or three times. Let that sink in. 
I'm writing so that you conquer sin. You may not sin. You may not have to ever again feel the pain and the hurt and the shame and the disgrace and the weakness of sin. I am as your Father in the Lord writing to you to show you you don't have to sin. It's like, nobody's ever told me that. The world certainly doesn't tell me that. I'm constantly encouraged to sin. No one has ever told me I didn't have to sin. And yet that's extremely significant part of the text. The reason I am writing these things is so that you may not sin. Now, in order to not sin, you need three things, and he gives them to us in the text. Number one, you need the ability to not sin. Number two, you need the assurance of pardon when you do sin. And number three, you need an advocate that stands before God the Father for you, pleading your case. John said, I want to tell you, in Christ, you have these three things. John is not giving us a 12-step program to conquer sin. 12-step programs do not conquer sin. Any other counseling program you're in will not conquer sin. You need three things to conquer sin. You need ability. You need assurance of pardon. You need an advocate, which is Christ, before God the Father. If your program does not have those three things, you will not conquer sin. You see, you can't do this without Christ. You can't do it without Jesus. Which is why the world is not ever going to allow you to conquer it. Because they don't have what you need to conquer sin. So let's get into it a little bit deeper. Let's see, because we all have sins we're ready to conquer. We're tired of it. We're tired of all that comes with it. Let's get to a place we can conquer sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. So that you may not sin. It just... It sounds almost ridiculous. We just studied last week, chapter 1, verse 9, that if we sin, if we confess our sins, then He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it, it indicates that there's a present tense action of sinning, and when we sin, we will need to confess our sin, and when we confess our sin, there is promise of forgiveness. So we're going to sin, and then as soon as He tells us what to do when you sin, He takes it to another level. Let me tell you how you may not sin at all. Instead of just knowing how to deal with sin, what if you could get to the place where you may not sin? Well, then I'd have to have a lot of power. I'd have to have an ability that I don't seem to have now to not just pull up but to spin around the bar to really do something I've not been able to do maybe you could if it's really so ridiculous in your mind even to go here could you go this far with me could you say well could I go from sinning much 
to sinning little. Because if you can go from sinning much to sinning little, you're at least learning, I didn't have to sin. I was sinning a lot. And then I was able to stop and begin to get to a place where I sin little. I think that's certainly the path He has us on, that we get to a place where we realize we don't have to sin. How do we get there? Well, let's go back to chapter 1. It says, What was in the beginning, which we've heard, seen with our eyes, looked upon, touched. And he's talking about Jesus. What was in the beginning with Adam and Eve, what was in the beginning before Adam and Eve, which was Christ, God the Creator, that has now come back to us. And he's taking us to a place, Adam and Eve lost something. What did they lose? Adam and Eve were given a choice when it came to sin. You have the choice to sin or to not sin. There's a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden. It's called the tree of life, good and evil, knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of it or you could not eat of it. I want you to know ahead of time it would be disobedience. I do not want you to eat from that tree. They had a choice. They could choose to sin. They could choose not to sin. When they sinned, what did they lose? They lost the ability not to sin. Now they have sin sinned. They can't live life now without sin. Before they could. Before they had power, they had ability not to sin. But once they took of that fruit that was forbidden to them, they lost the ability not to sin. Now they have to do life with sin. Sin became part of their nature. They could never live life and, and not be a sinner. They were sinners now. And they would all be, always be sinners. And their children would be little sinners. We were born into that world that Adam and Eve gave us. The world in which we have a choice to sin. We have a choice now. Well, we don't have a choice. We lost the ability. Now we have to sin. John says, I want to take you back to a place where you may not sin. I want to take you back to the benefit of Christ who was in the beginning coming to us now. Because as Christ comes to us, He brings to us the power and the ability that we may not sin. That which was lost is now restored to us in Christ. That's the beauty of this passage. That we have the ability, yes, to sin, but now we have the power to choose not to sin. We have new ability. A lot of people want to talk about, no, I have the ability no, not to sin now. We don't realize the loss that we really incurred. Um, there was a time in my life where uh, pre-COVID, I, you know, I may have been the one who brought COVID here, I don't know. Um, I got some disease by caving, rock climbing, that came from a Wuhan bat, I think. And it, it attached to my lung, and it just started growing on my lung. And I didn't know this until it, it grew like an orange peel. 
around my lung and it just grew and grew and then it got infected and created pleurisy and pneumonia and the weight of the fluid and the weight of that peel on my lung just kept eating away until one night I woke up and my left lung had just completely crushed in pushing all your organs to the right and the pressure of those and I could barely breathe and I go to the hospital and it takes some weeks to figure out what in the world this was that had attacked me so three weeks in the hospital surgery to cut all of that off another three weeks outside the uh, hospital trying to recover through that period the thing I remember most is the ability I lost prior to that time you know I could I could run and play basketball I could run this court do layups at both ends probably outrun most of you I could walk 36 holes on the golf course, 10 miles, swing clubs, you know, have fun. I could actually get up out of my bed, walk across the room and use the bathroom with my own strength. But when you have that much air and you used to have this much, you look out the window and you see the boys playing basketball and doing layups and say, I can't do that. And when you see the golfers go by, I lived on a golf course, you see them go by, say, I can't do that. And then you realize, I can't even go to that next door where the bathroom is without sitting in the floor and asking God for air to breathe. It really touched me as we sang that song, the air that we breathe, the air in my lungs. I used to praise you. Because I remember a time I didn't have ability to breathe without grace. I had lost ability. There was an evil inside of me that blew up and it, it did not enable me to do what others seemed to be free to do. Do we realize how much sin destroys our ability? to please God, to do what God says. I, I wanted all day long to, to shoot the layup. It was a year and a half later before I was able to again. I wanted to swing. I had the, the freedom to choose it all day long. I wanted to go to the bathroom without help. But I had lost the ability and a lot of times we don't realize we have lost the ability to live without sin. Until Christ comes and gives us new air to breathe. A new ability to do something we had lost. And that's what John is talking about. You have an ability. Let me show it to you in a couple other passages. Look at Romans 6, 1-14. Romans 6. Romans 6. What shall I say? I'm going to read a section here. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin, you know, after Christ comes in? That grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, and, and see the word baptized here as union, okay? Because it's going to help you. 
do you not know that all of us who have been united to Christ Jesus were united, instead of baptized, united to his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been, see there's the word united, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. You don't have to sin. You're dead to it. You have a new ability. This new ability comes through being united to God. When you're united to God, when you're united to Christ, you have the ability Christ has. What ability does Christ have? Well, Christ had the ability to die, be buried, be resurrected, and live. So in Christ, as long as you are a part of Him, united to Him, you have the ability to die, be buried, be resurrected, and live. You're free. You are no longer one that is bound to sin. Christ isn't bound to it. You're no longer bound to it. You are free to walk in a new life. A life you had lost the ability to live. But now you have it in Christ. I was going to show you Titus 2. You can look there later. But Christians, don't, you don't have to make same sinful mistakes. Have you been sinning the same sin over and over? You don't have to do that. If you're in Christ, if you're united to Christ, you don't have to sin. You don't have to do the same sin over and over and over. Claim, own, believe, trust your union to Christ. You are united with Him given His power, His presence. And He changes your heart to where you get to a place I don't even want the same sins. I don't want to have that same old, same old, same old life. I want this newness of life, this new ability to be freed from bondage, freed from the restrictions of sin, freed from the inability to run into the glory and praises of God, to run into His courts, to run down the lane of His commandments, to run in the power and fullness of His Spirit. I have an ability I never had until united to Christ. Now that union gets me to a place where I'm free. I don't have to sin. Now, Think about the ramifications for this just briefly. If you're a parent and you've got children, 
You t tell them the gospel every day. You teach them. You teach them. You need to trust the God-man Jesus. He saves your life. You need Jesus in your life. Why? Because as you see Christ come into their life, it gives them a new ability. And you see your child becomes better and better and better. Why? Because they're in Christ. They don't have to do the same sin over and over. You get married to a, to a Christian. Why do you go want to marry a Christian instead of a non-Christian? Non-Christian has no hope of getting better. They are what they are. They're probably going to get worse. But when we're in Christ, we don't have to sin. So we get better and better and better and better. You bring Christ into the workplace. Why? Because if Christ is in the workplace and people are filled with Christ, they get better and better and better. They don't have to sin. The beauty of being in Christ and being freed from this bondage called sin. Well, i got to move on. Go back to 1 John chapter 2. Not only does he give us this ability that was lost with Adam and Eve, but gained in Christ, we get an assurance. Uh, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Crucial, it seems, what does that phrase mean? These things. So I meditate a while on the, these things, try to figure it out. It could mean a, a number of things, because but not a, a huge amount because we don't have but 10 verses of text before this. So if you go back into chapter 1 in those 10 verses, what are the, these things that he's writing? It could be this, this life that was manifested in the beginning and was lost and now regained in Christ. Could be writing that. That helps us to see we don't have to sin. It could be you get down verses 5 through 8 that we're walking in fellowship with God not just fellowship with one another. Those things definitely help us not to sin. You could get down to verse 9 and 10, that these things are this route of once you sin, getting out of sin through confession that God enables us to do, confess, and His faithfulness to forgive us. So I'm writing these things. Now I think more just kind of Hovering over verse 9 and 10 of chapter 1 is what's closest to the text. I'm, I'm writing these things that all lead to an assurance of forgiveness. That if we sin, we have a, a God who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want you to know that. So that you may not sin. What a motivation. A God who forgives us of our sins. I remember uh, counseling a couple uh, once that uh, the husband was, was a terrible alcoholic. He was in bondage to the sin of alcoholism. It is a sin and it was destroying his marriage. I asked the wife how she was dealing with that. She says, well, I, I've told him, just don't come back home. I hate to sin. I'm not going to forgive you. It's ruined our lives. As far as I'm concerned, you don't need to come home. Well, at some point, the husband realized that. And as I was talking to him, I said, why, why have you quit going home? He says, well, my wife doesn't want me there. 
And she told me she'll never forgive me uh, for what I've done. I, I often come home and I confess, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I know I did wrong, please forgive me. She says, nope, not going to forgive you. And so at some point, he just didn't come home anymore, and that was done. Well, we get all that, that's sad and tragic. And we get that there was terrible sin, so I'm not minimizing any of that. But at the same time, there was no forgiveness. And we sometimes don't realize why would we want to go see someone that wasn't going to forgive us? Why would we want to be hanging out with someone who would never forgive us? And as I, I thought about that, I said, no. We, we have a God who says, come to me. Come to me. I want to forgive you. I know you've sinned, I know you've messed up, and I'm not going to minimize your sin, but come to me. You're in bondage. Come to me. Let me forgive you. Confess your sin. Let me forgive you. Think about the motivation of that. It is the loving kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Because in coming to Him, we know we're not going to be hit over the head with a hammer. Rather, He's going to have mercy. Forgive us. Cleanse us. Give us a fresh start. A clean slate. And let us move forward in a new condition. So I'm writing that so that you know that. Because in knowing that, you're motivated not to sin. When you have someone who's, oh, I, I want to forgive you. I want to forgive you. Let me tell you this. I want to forgive you 70 times 7. Try to keep up with that. At some point you say, it'd be a shame to sin again. Because you've been so merciful and so gracious. I don't want to sin. And I don't have to sin. Because you give such rich and great mercy. What pumps me up when I sin is mercy and forgiveness and grace. Pumps me up not to do it again. Why did I do this? Because it's a shame to the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness. But boy, I'm so thankful I've got it. I am so thankful I've been able to start over and over and over again. It's the mercy of God that leads us there. Um, th think about it this way. Suppose you had a grandfather that uh, bought a stock for you and you didn't even know it. And uh, one day you get in a check in the mail. The stock market spikes. And you open the mail and there it is. $500. Cool. Or maybe it's $5,000. Or maybe it's $50,000. Or maybe it's $500,000. Whatever it takes for you to turn you on, okay? And you look at that check, and you say, unbelievable. Before you got open that mail, you were mad, you were screaming, you were through the roof. Now, all of a sudden, you're happy. And you're nice to anybody who shows up. What changed? The only thing that changed is something for nothing. You got a gift. 
of significance. You got something for nothing. What's forgiveness? Forgiveness is an unbelievable gift of significance for nothing. Does that not motivate you? Does that encourage you to say, I may not sin, I don't have to sin. Christ is giving me his riches. And all I bring to the table is sin. I give him nothing but sin. And he gives me a new life. Freed from the bondage of all these things that I've used to hold me back. I'm writing these things so that you will know. This is the motivation, the assurance of pardon, of great motivation to not sin. And then the third thing he gives us um, at the end of verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. So you, it's clear he's not taking us to a life of perfection. If anyone does sin, we're still going to mess up. But we don't have to. And we do it less and less and less. But when we do, he says, I want you to know, we have, an, uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Big point. When I sin, and I have to face the judge, advocate, I don't stand alone. I'm not by myself. That's huge. I have an advocate an advocate is someone who stands along beside you. An advocate is like an attorney, except he's not the prosecuting attorney. He's the defense attorney. He is defending you. He's on your side. Three ways Christ is described here. Let's look at all three real quick. Advocate, the righteous, and propitiation for our sins. The advocate is one who's called alongside to help us. Satan, who is Satan? He is the deceiver the accuser of the brethren. So Satan's on the other side, accusing us before the judge. He sinned, he sinned, he sinned. And then we have an advocate who grabs us, gets between us and Satan, and between us and God, and I got this. I got this. I'm going to defend you. You don't have to face the judge or the accuser alone. I'm with you. And I'll always be with you. What, what beauty to have Christ as our advocate, the one who's guaranteed to be with us. Second, he's not only advocate, he's a righteous advocate. He's the righteous. Clear description, the righteous. That's a title given to Christ. I was on jury duty here in Anderson, um, one time, and uh, there was an attorney. I forget the case. I just remember the attorney. And the attorney for uh, the, whoever was being accused of something, he got up and just went on. And, and the client wasn't even there. The attorney just went on and on and on. And we're sitting there on the jury kind of looking at each other. This is unbelievable. The guy exaggerated every point. He manipulated facts we're just, it was just obvious to everybody. This attorney, he's lying through his teeth. Trying to make 
his client look good and obviously his client doesn't look good. He won't even show up. He knows he's guilty. And we all knew he was guilty. You know, it did take us about five minutes to do a verdict. But the reason was not because of the client. The reason was because of the attorney. We got to the place we were just sick and tired of hearing so many lies and so much manipulation and twisting the facts. The judge was filled, you know, fed up with it. We were fed up with it. You've probably been in those kind of situations where you just get tired of hearing so many lies. Jesus Christ is the righteous. He's that defense attorney. When he speaks, there's such integrity that you soon realize every word out of his mouth is truth. And you begin to see the beauty of the truth. He's not twisting anything. He's not manipulating anything. And you begin to just feed on every word. And the judge and jury say, whatever he says, that's, that's where I'm voting. That's the, that's the right way. That's the righteous. That's the man. That's the advocate we have. He turns no one off. He brings the truth to the table in a strong way. Then it says, he's the propitiation for our sins. Some of your translations may have um, atonement, uh, mediation, um, some other word. But what it's talking about there, propitiation, is that Christ is the one who appeases the wrath, the righteous anger of God. So as the advocate who is the propitiation, he stands and takes the hot wrath of God and cools it down. He soothes it. He appeases it. Calms the stormy waters. That's what Christ calms. And so Satan is is screaming, he sinned, he sinned, he sinned. Jesus steps in and says, correct. See, he speaks truth. Yes, he sinned. But hold on. I'm willing to pay for that sin. God says, oh, okay, we got payment. See, it starts to cool things down. I'm willing not only to pay for that sin, I'm willing to supply all the righteousness he doesn't have. So he takes full responsibility for our sin. Brings all the righteousness we need to the table. Stands between us and God with truth. And the judge says, well, I'm willing, Christ, to let you pay for that sin. But the wages of sin is death. You're going to have to die. And you're going to have to take the punishment of hell. Christ says, I'm willing. Lay it on me. Lay the iniquity, the sin of David on me. And let me take that pain and that punishment. Let me give you in exchange righteousness. I'm writing so that you won't sin. If you do sin... I want you to know you don't stand alone. I still got you. And I'll take care of it. As your defense attorney, I will be there. I can deal with the accuser. And I can deal with the judge. Because I'm the righteous. And I bring that to your benefit. 
One other phrase, not only for you, but for the sins of the whole world. What's he talking about? He's not saying he's a universalist. It's clear in 1 John, he's not a universalist. Over in chapter 3, he talks about, you're the children of God, verse 10 of chapter 3. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. There's two categories there, it's easy to see. Not everybody is going to heaven. So Christ is, when he says he's propitiation for the whole world, what's he talking about? Does everybody go to heaven? No, they're still children of God and they're still children of the devil. What he's talking about there, just common New Testament language. John, a Jew, writing to Jews. Jews felt like they were special because they were Jews. They were the national church. He's, he's, where's the, the text? He says, he is the propitiation. See the, word, the, the pronoun, our sins? He's for ours. And then he says, uh, not only for ours. Ours, who's the ours? Us, usans, us Jews. He's not only appreciation for us who are special, yes. But he's, he's making a point. The reason we're special is not because we're Jews. The reason we're special is because we have Jesus. And Jesus is not only with Jews. It's, it's, he's appreciation for us, but also for the whole world, for the Gentile world, for the Gentiles. But the benefit comes with having Jesus. Nothing in the text says the benefit comes from being nationally a Jew or nationally being a Gentile or internationally being a Gentile. It comes from having Christ. I knew I would extend my time. I'm just going to close with a verse. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, I want to leave you with power. 2 Corinthians 5. Let me read 13 and 14, but 14 is where I want to get. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If you, if you think I've been acting crazy up here, it's because of God. He just he gets me pumped up. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. I'm going to spend this time for you. And here it is. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this. That one has died for all. Jew and Gentile alike. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might not long, no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. I want you to be able to walk out of here and say, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to stop this sin. I'm going to conquer this sin. I may not do it perfectly. i got to fall back if I mess up. Because if we sin, we've got an advocate. So I might not get it perfect today. But I'm going to sin less. And the reason I'm going to start sinning less, and the reason my wife has hope, and the reason my husband has hope, and the reason my kids have hope, and my parents have hope, and my workers have hope, that I'm going to get better and better and better is because I have ability in Christ to do more. I have 
assurance of pardon. My slate gets washed in the blood of Christ. The nature I inherited is now fed with the body and blood of Christ so that now I have a righteousness not my own. Planted within me gives me power. It gives me assurance. And I have an advocate. I have someone pleading my case constantly so that I always stand faultless before the throne. I am controlled by the love of Christ. I am constrained by the love of Christ to be different, to be more and more and more like Christ. That's the glory. See, the non-Christian, if you're in this room, you're non-Christian. If you're in the world without Christ, you have no hope of ever coming out of the bondage of sin that you're in. Without Christ. You can take programs. You can go to endless counseling. But you have to have ability to say no to sin, yes to Christ. You have to have pardon. You have to have cleansing. You have to have someone pleading your case before God or your case really never got any better. Only Christ does that. As believers, we have unbelievable benefit in Christ. So we gather to praise His name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what joy is ours. What joy is ours to find that there is now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. We're free. May we worship and adore you. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.